As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a very serious hero of mine here with me today. Dr. Pamela Ayo Yatunde is a pastoral counselor. She's a writer, an instructor, and a speaker. She's a JD, an MA, a PhD. She did her postdoctoral work at Harvard Divinity School. She earned a Doctor of Theology in Pastoral Counseling from Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. She earned her MA in Culture and Spirituality from Holy Names University in Oakland and her law degree, hello, from Indiana University School of Law, obviously in Bloomington. She is a community Dharma leader certified by Spirit Rock Meditation Center also in Woodacre, California. Most recently, although she is the author of the uh, Frederick J. Stang Book Award-winning Buddhist-Christian Dialogue, U.S. Law and Womanist Theology for Transgender Spiritual Care, uh, she's also the author of Black and Buddhist what Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom. That was published by Shambhala. But most recently, she is the author of Casting Indra's Net. And the subtitle of this, very timely indeed, Fostering Spiritual Kinship and Community. I am so honored to speak with you, Ayo, as you are named, as you are called, about this book. It has had a huge impact on me as I travel through my last three years of uh, study with Upaya, moving on to Buddhist chaplaincy training next year. Um, I'm on page three of the introduction, and I just want to read this before I formally welcome you. This book is a plea. I'm virtually on my hands and knees begging. It brings the Temptations 1966 song, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, to mind. Their song is about the romantic love between a man desperate for love and the woman, his sweet darling, who is about to leave him. My pleading and begging are not about romance, but are the heartfelt expression of an older black woman, arguably now an elder, with a familial love for all, irrespective of gender, race, sexuality, and various expressions of identity. As the daughter of a mother who was adopted, and as the mother of my adopted child, by familial I mean seeing each other as kin, and leaning into a posture toward adopting each other as relatives. Watching those committing violence through mobbery, a term and phenomenon I describe in chapter one, who are depriving us of the opportunity to realize and express our genuine kinship, I beg and plead with you all, sweet darlings, because I refuse to let you go. Please stay with me in the fold of love and civility, because I ain't too proud to beg. Welcome, Dr. Pamela Ayoyatunde, to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, can I take a moment to say congratulations to you for choosing the path of chaplaincy, spiritual mm -hmm. care? Thank you. Um, it is a beautiful path. 
I'm so glad you had the experience at Upaya Zen Center, and I feel honored to be with you right now. Thank you. Oh, oh my God. Hand on my heart. Breath lost. Good grief. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, on your website, at the very top, it says, the greatest gift in life is the joy of truly recognizing each other. And this is a wonderful introduction to who you are for our listener today. Casting Indra's Net is a very important book, and it also has wisdom, I want you to know, our listener, from Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, and more. I was raised a Jew, Ayo was raised otherwise, and we both found all of these religions at some point in our lives. Every single religion I've just named has played a role for both of us in our spiritual formation. On page eight of the introduction, though, this is where I want to talk a little further, you're asking for a compassion revolution. I'm reading from the top of the page. If we are to have any chance of creating such a revolution, I know it must begin with courageously facing ourselves and each other. If our compassion bypasses what we find most difficult, we will not develop the strength to weather our most profound challenges. And this is the topic we'll be exploring together throughout this book. And I want to begin with my own story. You proceed to tell the story about learning to face living and dying. You're nine years older than I. Um, you were born into a Christian family. You religiously went to church on Sunday mornings. But you didn't really buy the part of the God talk because you actually had a loving father, who was the man married to your mother. And uh, it turned out their marriage lasted only 10 years because he died suddenly of cardiac arrest at the damn age of 35. Playing golf, you were eight this changed everything for you. And sadly, you had to see his, as you say, motionless and ashen body in a casket. You were in shock when it was time for the funeral. You refused to go. You faked being sick. You know, you're not a good liar. Your mother knew you were faking and she allowed you not to go. I think she very wisely picked up on the difficulty you were having. And you attended only three funerals between the ages of eight and 39. And I would love for you to talk to our listener a little bit about those funerals and also the one that you didn't attend for your cousin who died of AIDS. Mm. Hmm. Oh, I know, oh, I know. Elena, I know. Wow. I'm sorry. Uh, no, you know <laughs> what? I am grateful. Mm. The fact that you can ask those questions and that you are prepared for my answers, I believe, mm. is a testament to your practice and your interest. These are topics that a lot of people would prefer to avoid cover over with sweetness and kindness and cliches about how everything's going to be okay. So let's go there. Let's do it. Yeah. I will begin by talking about one funeral in particular, since you talked about growing up Jewish. This was a funeral I attended of someone who I didn't know who was Jewish. It was at a synagogue. And the reason why I went was to accompany my friend but also to see if I could attend a funeral of someone I didn't know and not lose my shit, to put it frankly. As it were. <laughs> mm-hmm, as it were. <laughs> well, okay. I did. I lost it. Mm. I cried louder than anybody in the synagogue mm. because of my unresolved grief. There was another time I went to a funeral to accompany a friend and I thought maybe it would be good for me to go. This was of a person who was a Jehovah's Witness. And the funeral was held at Kingdom Hall. And no one cried. 
I didn't hear a sniffle, a whimper, and I didn't cry because I didn't feel like there was permission to cry. Clearly, I was able to hold it back because I thought this is not appropriate at this particular funeral. I have no idea what the backstory was. And I don't know, there have been other funerals that I didn't attend. Nothing is coming to mind right now. Can I say this on the other hand? On the other hand, when I went through CPE training, I could not wiggle out of leading funerals. No one told me that that would be part of uh, the clinical pastoral education path to becoming a chaplain, is that I would be asked to lead funerals. If I had known that, I'm pretty sure I would not have participated in the CPE chaplaincy program. Meanwhile, all I want to do is go to one of your funerals <laughs> right this minute. <laughs> like, I bet it's such a good space, such a whole healing yeah. space. Well, I wouldn't be trying to make anyone feel anything they didn't feel authentically. Right, I wouldn't be doing that. But as a chaplaincy resident, I was able to lead a funeral for a stillborn child. I was able to lead a funeral for a middle-aged woman. And what I learned in that is that I was able to bracket my own grief for the purposes of attending to another's grief. Wow. Is that something you would recommend? Um. Like to someone like me, mm. is that something mm. I wonder? Yes. Okay. Yes. I would make that recommendation. If your role is to lead the funeral, your role then is not to take attention away from the dearly departed. Of course. And if you can't hold it together as the leader, then people are going to be taking care of you. And I think that would leave an impression on those who attended to be part of the mourning process they're going to have that memory. It's like, I attended this funeral and we ended up taking care of the leader, the minister. And that's not right. That's not how it's supposed to go. So yes, I would say, learn how to bracket your grief for the moment and then be sure that you make space for your own grieving process outside of the view of the mourners. Hmm. Have you done that for your father yet? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because this gives me an opportunity to talk about deep time liberation. Deep time liberation is an organization of African descended Buddhist practitioners who, inspired by Bernie Glassman's work, take people, lead people, facilitate conversation on sacred ground. And by sacred ground, I'm talking about where former Enslaved people were enslaved, holding retreat space where enslaved people were violated, oppressed, so that we can get in touch with that pain, intergenerational pain and trauma, and get in touch with the varieties of ancestors, African descendant and not. And I attended, actually, uh, a deep time liberation retreat online because during the pandemic, we couldn't get together. And in that deep time liberation retreat, for the first time since I was eight years old, I got the courage to look at my father's obituary that had been uh, ripped off of my door by my mom. So yes, I have had time to grieve and I have more grieving to do. <sighs> 
Just have my hand on my heart for a moment, giving myself a little empathy, listening and feeling. Thank you for yours and for our listener. I would like to point out that Bernie Glassman is the founder of Zen Peacemakers Order, one of the teachers, dear teachers of Roshi Joan Halifax, who's my teacher, and also takes retreats to, or in his lifetime took retreats, and how the Zen Peacemakers Order continues his legacy of taking retreats to places like Auschwitz, where people of all religions can gather, and on this sacred land where so much pain was inflicted, begin the process or continue the process of this intergenerational feeling and healing that needs to happen on these lands. That's just one example. There's also retreats where they take people into, you know, New York City, Oakland, and you are emptying your pockets. You don't have a phone. You don't have a wallet. You don't have any money. You're paying to do this, and you're going first to find the cardboard on which you're going to sleep tonight. So that's the kind of engagement that I was talking about for our listeners so you know who Bernie is or was. So I would like to hear a little bit more about these retreats in particular on uh, formerly enslaved lands. I am sure that I have at least one listener who is interested in learning more if they can attend one of these retreats. Mm-hmm. I would only say I know they have one coming up in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And more information can be found online. But I will say so, so powerful. I, I don't know what their website address is. Okay. If you type in Deep Time Liberation or if you go to, if you type in Deep Time Liberation Lion's Roar, of which I'm an associate editor with Lion's Roar, you'll find articles by people who are founders of Deep Time Liberation and who have participated in their retreats, as well as Bernie Glassman retreats, uh, Zen Peacemaker Order retreats, and so on. For our listeners' sake, I just went ahead and put in Deep Time Liberation Lions Roar, and I found plenty to look through. So go ahead and put that into your search bar. Um, Deep Time Liberation is how, in the present, we experience the influence of our people's historical past and the possibilities of our future, says African-American Buddhist teacher Devin Berry. Quote, the deep insights that arise have the power to heal the collective trauma of Black people from the African diaspora. Well, we can just shut this down right now because that was so important, I think, for at least one of our listeners to hear. I'm so grateful for that, and I had no idea. There's also a website called DeepTimeLib, DeepTimeLib.org, and that looks like the home base for such retreats. The next one is in September of 2023. Thank you so much for that. More questions for you regarding this book, Casting Indra's Net, and your perspective on relationality. I'm now on page 62. Let's look at the traditional Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path from the perspective of relationality. One, we suffer. This is the first noble truth. Truth of suffering happens to all of us. We suffer from impaired relationality. Two, there are causes for our suffering here. There are causes for our relational impairment. This is good news because once we know the causes, we can start to look toward healing things. Three, relational impairment can be healed. As we know, the third noble truth, you know, there is a way out of this suffering. 
And four, relational impairment can be healed through the noble eightfold path. So we move on to the eightfold path. The forest truth, of course, includes cultivating and possessing the right view of ourselves in relationships, number one. The right intention to form healthy relationships, number two. The right speech that supports relating to one another in ways that minimize harm. Four, the right actions that invite one another into healthy relationships. Five, the right livelihood that promotes healthy relationships. Six, the right effort that promotes mutuality in relationships. Many of our listeners have studied MBC, so they know that mutuality and how important that is. Seven, possessing the right mindfulness that promotes healthy relationships. And finally, the eight of the eightfold path, the right concentration that reveals our individual and collective true nature, which informs us about true mutuality and relationships with one another. And this is a really cool framework for us to use because it doesn't sidestep the suffering, but it does really present pathways for us that we can feel and touch. You look at the traditional Noble Eightfold Path as a form of cognitive behavioral psychology, you say in the book, for reducing the dysthmic or chronically irritable or depressive impacts of our cognitive tendencies, which we all have. We were born in this society. We all have it. These tendencies lead us to focus on negative. They lead us to catastrophize. They lead us to become paranoid. And all of this causes us to vilify and discriminate against each other. It doesn't matter what group we're in. It's happening. In terms of personality disorders, Buddhist psychology, in which I place the Noble Eightfold Path, you say in your book, is most concerned with the suffering of narcissism, which is a cause, you say, and a condition of mobbery. And you think, you posit, that practicing this Noble Eightfold Path of mutuality and relationality can actually help prevent our participation in this mobbery. I really like this because we are stuck as a society. All the sides are stuck. And I find myself aiming in only one direction, which is to not join the mob, to spend time with people individually, people with whom I don't agree at all, and to listen to them really well, and to try and establish myself as a bastion of safety and a raft rather than some person who will take a side with you because it feels good. You know, I'm really interested in this and I would love to hear you. Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L-M-N-T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet. Helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, fogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 
and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here, no sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single-serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link, drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. You speak on the suffering of narcissism and how you see it as a result of this mobbery tendency. Wow. You know, (laughs) Elena, I have to admit, I heard you ask me a question. I don't even think that I grokked it because I was so focused and moved by the statement that you made Mm. about establishing yourself as a bastion of safety. So it's pretty much all we can do right now. (laughs) You think that's easy? That is not easy to do. Largely, it's not easy to do because in the culture we're in now, we are being conditioned to be so suspicious of one another. I know. Just based on characteristics, right? So I might say, just looking at you and you looking at me, we cannot be bastions of safety for one another because of the way we appear to one another. And that is so unfortunate and deluded because maybe we don't trust ourselves. I would like to check it out. I'd like to check out if you are a bastion of safety before I assume that you are not, right? That's me. But many of us are, we're not inclined at the moment. Many of us are not inclined at the moment to check it out, to check each other out. Uh, It's like... And mostly because we're ignoring ourselves. Well, aren't we? Right. Yeah, because we're so distracted by so many things. I was just going to say, we're still stuck in a society that still prioritizes productivity. (laughs) Still rewards people like getting shit done, (laughs) you know? Right. Right. Exactly. And then we can um, use these things that we buy as trophies to prove how wonderful we are. I was just reading a book that I can't say the name of yet because it's not published yet. But I think I can say the name of the author. His name is Ben Cat, K-A-T-T. And he's writing about this very thing, how we get so habituated to productivity that we lose our way from our true self. But we don't know that's what's happening until one day we're just so exhausted and sick of this false self we have created, not always intentionally, that it can leave us unmoored and um, distraught and grieving and confused about how to find our way back to our true home. Much of our productivity is around not actually living our authentic selves. And I'm not saying that we should blame ourselves for that as part of living in the society, swimming in this pool, sipping from the soup, (laughs) right? Saying that we're not going to survive if we live authentically. We will survive if we kowtow to the man, so to speak, and that the man will take care of us. So... This is one of the reasons why narcissistic personalities form. I'm not talking right now about... 
you know, no. for our listener. You're not born no. like that. This is a coping mechanism that serves a very real purpose in childhood for a kid who becomes a narcissist. They probably have a narcissist parent and they needed to look out for themselves so strongly that this is what happened. Right. Now, that's someone who might be, you know, truly narcissistic in terms of a diagnosis. But those are very few, according to uh, scientists. Those are very few. It's the rest of us who need to puff out our chests, who need to brag about ourselves, who need to be first in line, who need to win every game in order to feel a sense of self. And I think that the Buddhist path is a way to, mm, I would say, soften it. For some people, they might actually transform completely. But for most of us, it will be a softening of those tendencies. And in this society we're in, where we see so many leaders leading with narcissism, using their narcissism to consolidate power, and then to abuse that power and weaponize that power against others. It's a horrible lesson, how to be with others. So we have a lot of work to do to survive the onslaught of this kind of narcissism that finds itself at the top of the political structures and business structures that, mm, how can I say, rain down on the rest of us. Page 65, you talk about the right view of mutuality and relationality, part of this uh, Noble Eightfold Path. And I think this speaks to what, like, if you're listening and what's just been said is really, like, just very challenging to take in, what on earth are we to do? Here's what to do. Bottom of page 65 in Casting Indra's Net, awakening to what? To loving kindness. I like to look to the Metta Sutta the Loving-Kindness Sutra, a teaching from the Buddhist Pali Canon for inspiration in this regard, you write. It states, To reach the state of peace, one skilled in the good should be capable and upright, straightforward and easy to speak to, gentle and not proud, contented and easily supported, living lightly, with few duties, wise and with sense calmed, not arrogant and without greed for supporters. One should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. That's just the beginning. There's the recipe. In my mind, that's the recipe. Like, uh -huh. I'm trying so hard. Just capable, upright, straightforward, easy to speak to, gentle, not proud, contented, easily supported, living lightly, few duties. Just get rid of all the shit I have to do. Wise and with sense calmed, not arrogant, without greed. You know, that's it. That's the recipe. Well, let me ask you this, though, because I think a lot of people would say, okay, I can get with a lot of that, but who are the wise? Who are the wise ones that I should be concerned about not being criticized by? If I had to answer it right away. Who are they? How do I know they're wise? Mm -hmm. What led them to be wise? Um, why does it matter mm -hmm. what they think about me or would think about me? Mm. You know, if I had to answer this right now, I would say something in the realm of the elder teachers whom I've chosen as my guides. I'm a very literal kind of person, so I, I'm i like thinking, what would I really say here? But that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. So 
if I'm following you correctly, if you know you're about to do something and you're thinking, ah, maybe I shouldn't do this, being that Roshi Joan Halifax is your teacher, yes, you might recall lessons from Roshi Joan. You might bring to mind an image of her face, the sound of her voice, the movement when she's leading ritual, the way she teaches. And say, nah, (laughs) I'm not going to do that because I think Roshi Joan would say, now, come on now. Honestly, I always see her where I am. Like even in my own house when I'm completely alone, she's right here. And I would do what I would do if she were sitting right here. Here's how I'm holding my hands. Here's how I'm holding my book, my water, like whatever I'm doing. I always have her in my mind. It's so strange that you said that and wonderful that you said that. We both appreciate Rosie Joan. Yeah. Deeply, so deeply. In fact, I just got the opportunity to schedule her in for another second podcast for a recent release that she made with Shambhala also. So I'm really looking forward to that. Even though I get to see her. Congratulations. She's busy. We're busy people. (laughs) Busy people. We're busy people. Yeah. But paying attention to the wise, yeah. Yes, the words you just said, paying attention to the wise ones who are always kind of hoping that we'll walk in the shoes of the one who is straightforward and upright and calm and gentle. You know, can we just live into that? Right. Elena, may I ask you a question about that? Please. Do you have young listeners? You know, it's interesting. My son, who's almost 17, said he's been listening every now and again, which is really sweet. And I wonder if he shares it. I know I have listeners in their 20s, 30s, and upward. Okay, that's young to me. Okay, for sure. (laughs) The reason why I ask that is because in addition to the many ways that people are being encouraged to be divided one against the other, there is this perpetual thing that's just part of nature, which is the intergenerational divides. Young people thinking old people don't know anything, old people thinking young people don't know anything. When I think about paying attention to our wise ones, I want to say to young people to not be deluded by the intergenerational divide that persists that says older people don't know anything. Older people have taken a lot of hits, a lot of hits, in order to make the path for younger people easier. And younger people bring innovation, mm-hmm. new ways of doing things. Yeah. And what I love about being young is tend to be less afraid to call things as they see it. When you're at that age and you can begin to pinpoint hypocrisy, it's shocking. It's shocking that people don't always do what they say they're going to do. So I would say to young people, try to cultivate some grace around uh, seeing older people as having wisdom so that we can walk this path of liberation together intergenerationally. Yes. Yeah. That's, I think, the most important part. Both sides see the other side as being inept, and both sides need to see the other side as holding deep wisdom, period. You talk about koans in this book, too. I'm on page 78, 9 now, and... I'd love for you to define for our listener what a koan means to you, and then we'll talk about uh, Tayshan and the uh, the <laughs> moon seller. It's okay, well, <laughs> a koan to me 
really is like a confusing short story used to stop or interrupt unnecessary discursive thinking and thus suffering. That's what it means to me. I'm going to leave a moment there so that our listener can take that in. That is exactly the definition that I have never heard that is so exactly what I needed. The discursive thinking needs to stop. And to be shocked by a short story is exactly what this mind needs. Here's the story of Taishan. An old, presumably uneducated woman of no pastoral authority whatsoever encountered a Buddhist scholar named Taishan Shanchen in her tea shop. Entering the shop, he asked for a treat called mumu. And mumu has double meaning. It means both culinary refreshment and mind freshener. Or mind refresher. Taishan said he had traveled to the area to find people who were claiming to have awakened without intensely studying the Dharma, likely intending to show that to be an impossibility. So this guy is basically going in there saying, you know, it's not possible to have a sudden realization. You have to study and study and study and study and study. So the old woman offered to serve Taishan some mumu, but only if he could convincingly answer her question. And before asking her question, she let him know that she was familiar with the Diamond Sutra, which is a very important Mahayana Sutra that Taishan had no doubt studied and commented upon. And I think in some interpretations of the story, he's carrying all of his sutra notes with him in a big bag. She mentions a part of the sutra that says that the mind of the future cannot be grasped. The mind of the past cannot be grasped. The mind of the present cannot be grasped. Taishan affirms this point, and he must have been stunned just by the fact that this tea shop owning old woman knew something he didn't think people like her knew. Having thus teed up the unsuspecting scholar, the old lady then asked him the question, with the mumu you are ordering, what mind are you seeking to refresh? Taishan, of course, was completely stumped. It is said that after hearing her question, he asked her for the directions to the nearest Zen temple. (laughs) the old woman's question was a koan. And this is, as you say in your book, a relational turning point in not knowing life at all that redirected Taishan away from his competitive, divisive intent and toward transformative practice. (sighs) What mind are you seeking to refresh, young man? It's just incredible. That's the discursive mind that has to leave the building. That's the one that keeps us fighting. Yeah, I was just resting on that question, feeling at peace. That's another part of the koan. It's like, you can't answer the question, really. That's the whole point. You can't answer it. And then when you realize, oh, (laughs) I can't answer it. I am free from all of that chatter. Oh, that's joy. Mm. Gosh. Now let me go to the Zen temple. (laughs) Yeah. Player, where are we? Where am I? Tell me where to go. Mm -hmm. What's wonderful about what you just said, you know, I've been sitting in that Zendo a long time, and I hope for many, many more decades of my life. And yet, when you said, I can't answer the question, I'm free, and you just started laughing, like full of joy, I received 
a transmission that I can stop again. And I can stop worrying about making sure that everyone knows that I'm, you know, doing the right thing. Stop worrying that I know the answer. Stop worrying that I do anything right. (laughs) Right. Thank you for that. Get off of that. Get off of that productivity gerbils wheel and rest. Yeah. I have one last question for us for today. I'm feeling like I need more time with you than I have given myself. Page 139 in the Action Without Attachment chapter, you talk about self-directing freedom and moral independence. In Buddhism, we call this like uh, being like an island. And after you imagine offering, I'm reading from the book, that which alleviates suffering. Release your imagination from the clouds, from the images in the third eye, and return to being on earth, but with a non-defended, imaginative, generous, and compassionate consciousness that reflects like mirrors, like diamonds, like pearls. Make an effort to commit to living into your compassionate imagination. And that's an instruction, too, for us, our listener, you know, If you know someone is hungry, you can offer them a meal. If there's a a way for you to alleviate someone's suffering, part of this sort of healing from all this mobbery and narcissistic tendencies is to just alleviate that person's suffering in whatever small way you can. Um, In this particular instance, you're teaching an actual meditation. Breathe in the suffering and breathe out the offering which I really appreciated. But the way that you bring it down to earth is so important, I think. Being on earth with a non-defended, imaginative, generous, and compassionate consciousness that reflects like mirrors. I don't know what else there is. But you did very sweetly pull some Lojong slogans from Pema Chodron's Compassion Cards deck, which I think is really cool. And these cards are all the Lojong, which are mind-training slogans. These are Tibetan Buddhists. They are studied by all the strains of Buddhism. In fact, Upaya does a, an event at least once a year on Lojong. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams taught the last one, and it was miraculous for me. The three slogans that you picked, which I think are helpful for our listener, first, train in the preliminaries. Can you talk about this as it has meaning to you, Io, for our listener? Right, and what page are we on again? Now we're on page 139. Okay, so you pulled random cards from Pema Chodron's deck on the slogans. First, train in the preliminaries, which I think is what we just said, like be on earth, you know, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Well, I want to talk about it in this way, because I gave a talk not long ago, and someone said that was the most passionate presentation I've ever heard on the code of ethics. (laughs) And this organization had a code of ethics, many organizations do. And so these preliminaries, first train in the preliminaries, is really about foundational ethical commitments. Because, number one, if you don't think life is precious, then what do you think life is? Something that you can just trample over? Something that you can decide when life should be and when it should not be? If you don't have that very foundational ethical commitment that life is precious, then none of the other Lojong statements will matter. 
Remembering that life ends is what helps us understand that life is precious. It's fleeting and we need to take it seriously, but not without laughter, but just to take it seriously. It's short. That there is cause and effect, meaning, and this is probably one of the things that really drew me to Buddhism, is that for much of the teachings, it's really not magical. It's so common sense. If you do one thing, you can expect that there will be some kind of impact. What is that impact? What can you imagine that impact to be? Is it the impact that you want to have? If not, maybe you should refrain from the behavior. If it is, if it's beneficial impact, maybe you should continue. And so this helps us just make really good decisions that there is cause and effect. And self-absorption, again, back to narcissism, causes suffering. And I think that's really important because oftentimes we will say, that person is so self-absorbed, they're so self-centered, they're so narcissistic, because that personality type is irritating for people who want to be in relationship with them. But if we can take a break, breathe, and realize the reason for that is a deep insecurity then how can you not feel something for that person? And then I just want to go back to where we started. Yeah. Establish oneself as a bastion of safety. Your words. If we have any success with people who are deeply insecure, it will be because they have experienced us as having established a bastion of safety for them. Hmm. Which kind of leads directly to slogan number 13 that you chose next, that you pulled from the cards. Be grateful to everyone. It's on page 140. This slogan invites us to look into ourselves more deeply when someone provokes an uncomfortable feeling and reaction. So we are fine saying thank you to the people who say, gosh, you look pretty today. Gosh, you're smart. Gosh, you're doing a good job. But we're not conditioned, as you say, to build relationships with people who annoy anger or just are not impressed with us. And this slogan supports the teachings from the sages, like Jesus himself, who said that when someone violates you through violence or theft, do not retaliate. Wisdom also tells us there is a time and a place for nurturing relationships with people who have hurt us. But in the meantime, in our hearts, We can actually say thank you. Thank you for doing that to me. Thank you. As crazy as this sounds, we can appreciate it and how their injury to us has helped us see that we were actually clinging to some sense of ego and that it's our ego that is injured and not ourself. Now, I would like to point out we are not talking about capital T physical trauma. We're talking about ego bruises here. Yes, exactly. Ego bruises. Mm -hmm. Like, I've had one recently that was so serious, like weirdly serious, and a simple mistake that I'd made that hurt somebody so badly that she, it was crazy. Anyway, I'm just thanking her in my mind over and over and over again until the thing passes, trusting that maybe in 10 years or 20 years when we're seriously elders in our 70s, that we'll find each other again and she can forgive me. And I can also forgive her for the crazy town she's brought to my life because of my mistake. 
you know, it's so hard to say thank you, but I'm closing with this for a reason, because this thank you is the way forward in every difficult situation that isn't a capital T traumatic situation. We can say, you know what? Thank you for expressing your opinion. I totally don't agree, but I'm listening and I appreciate that you expressed yours. Like this, we can go forward. Yes. You say we want to end here. So all I can say to you is thank you. Even though you didn't bruise my ego, but you could, and I could bruise yours. This is the nature of being human until we get to know each other. This is how we get to know each other. We rub up against each other. We bump up against each other. We grind against each other. But in the meantime, thank you because I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to know you just a little bit. I'll say the very same. The very same. And this book and your messages and the way that you're speaking here, even just in relationship with me right now, you know, it makes a difference in my heart. I'm feeling seen and held. And I hope that you are feeling the same way because that's my intention. And I'm so glad. In the last chapter, Knowing Your Place in the Cosmos, page 145, you included the Desiderata poem. I'm so grateful I haven't seen it in so long and I double folded it (laughs) to make sure that I come to it before we really close. And I thought it might be nice if you read it to our listener, dear Ayo. Okay, I will. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Desiderata. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexatious to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain or bitter. For always there will be greater, lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals, and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself, especially Do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love. For in the face of all aridity and disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees 
and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be, and whatever your labors and aspirations, in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul with all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams. It is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Thank you so much for reading that. That brought great peace and ease to my body. There is uh, just a couple notes for our listener regarding this book, Casting Indra's Net. Um, There is one more chapter, actually, the last one, which is Letters from a Chicago Condo, which is very, very important. Uh, Letters that were unpublished, op-ed pieces, letters to Dr. King, really deep, deep healing in these pieces that I think are very important to address. And I also wanted our listener to know that in each chapter there are contemplations, some meditations. This is an incredible workbook. And if you're working with other people, if you're a teacher of any practice, uh, contemplative practice or movement practice, this is an important book to own and keep very close. I have been healed in many ways by reading this book, and I really thank you, Ayo, for bringing it to the world for all the work and all the time. I can only imagine the hours you've spent putting this together. I thank you so much from my heart to yours. Mm. Received and back at you. Mm. Thank you for being here. Thank you to our listener. And Pamela can be found. I'm just going to spell it out for you. Pamela Ayoyatunde.com. P A M E L A. Then another A Y O. Then another Y E T U N as in Nancy D E.com. Pamela Ayoyatunde.com. You'll find all of her books there, her work, her appearances, storycraft, awards, endorsements, everything. And if you want to connect with her, you can do so there. Oh, thank you so much. I feel full. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity. The conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health 
arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.